Oh, hello, everybody. I didn't see you come in. How did you get the keys to my apartment? Anyway, this is Critically Acclaimed. This is the podcast where uh, we, we, we review movies here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You know, you come charging good, out with the good, joke. Yeah. <laughs> and, totally... and then it, like, peters out immediately. Well, I forget <laughs> that we actually have to do the job of introducing the podcast and that we've actually got it. We've done it so many times. We've got it kind of down to a science, and then I just forgot science. <laughs> anyway, this Introduce is a, yourself, William. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. I write for The Rap. I'm recently doing some writing for Decoding Everything. Everyone calls me Bibs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am senior staff writer Ooh, over at Slash Film. That'll never get old. Uh, I have a title. I'm going to use it. You should. Great. You deserve yeah. it. You've earned that title. You put in the work. So congratulations again. Yeah. I'll say it every time until you forget to bring it up. No. Yeah, well, well, what we got to do next is like infiltrate one of these uh, newspapers that's just shuddering, and, <laughs> like firing everybody. It's yeah. like we're we're gonna save. I don't know the AV club or something. Like, yeah. Because the AV club, like they, oh, it was, I think it was taken over important. by like venture capitalists or something. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Pr- they, prior to that, yeah. it was actually a really good outlet. It was a great and outlet. And they had a wonderful talent of writers and yeah. they had a lot of interesting uh, points and essays coming out all the time. Yeah, they were culturally uh, relevant. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, some asshole venture capitalists mm-hmm. came in and said, we're going to scrap this for parts. They fired the whole staff. Yeah. And now it's just, and they're and, like, and now they're doing like AI articles know, now. It's so it's embarrassing. Brutal. It's really brutal. It's a really hard time right now, and I'm going to say this right now. Um, thank you, everybody, for supporting this show. Mm. Please, if there's a publication that you like, bookmark them, visit them. Mm-hmm. Just visit them over and over again because just the clicks helps. Just them. the clicks yeah. helps because if if you're going to click on an article, leave it up for an extra thirty seconds. Even that helps because click on an ad. Yeah, the, you don't you don't have to buy anything, but clicking on an cl- ad cl- can really click help on out. the ad and then just close the window. But yeah, clicking on the Even ad that out. really helps. Yeah. It's we're at a we're at a really critical time for journalism of any stripe. We in particular uh, know the entertainment journalism angle better, but it's bad all around. And if you if there's a publication you like that you support that you want to be around, even if you don't have time to read it a lot, just do what you can. Just, just if there's an article you like, share it on social media. Just eat, all the little things add up because so many of them have resorted to just desperately trying to chase what we call uh, SEO. It stands for search engine optimization, yeah. which means that a lot of these publications are only trying to like glom on to what's already being talked about right now. And that's a losing position in the long run. Because you'll never be the thing people talk about in the first place. And then once the algorithm changes in all the search engines and that search engine optimization doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. your, your, your traffic crashes and you might be able to build it back up again, but you might not. And I've known some places that couldn't come back from that just because Google changed some figures randomly and didn't even yeah. warn everybody. It's a volatile system right now. So there's something you like, support them however you can. Um, what I've been lo- what I've loved seeing yeah and uh, and i've said this before um th- there was this whole ecosystem that thrived in when uh seo grew out of mm. uh reliably popular film franchises in our field yeah uh the the kinds of headlines that uh, got the most clicks were the ones that everyone was clicking on. Yeah. So films and the films that everybody was seeing, the Avengers and mm-hmm. the Star Wars, the most popular the stuff most pop- that, yeah. especially stuff that was part of a franchise where there isn't just a past and a present, mm. but a future to look forward to yeah, that you can uh, speculate on. You can write more articles. Just the, about. this, yeah, this gigantic yeah. commercial enterprise yeah. and um, and general journalism was 
kind of pointed in that direction had like one foot firmly planted in that mm-hmm. world yeah. and there was also like a whole ecosystem of journalism yeah. like the, the geek friendly superhero kind mm-hmm. of websites yeah. um that stuff is all drying up now yeah and where are those people going and you're seeing these like really salacious youtube videos from these <laughs> uh previously really enthused like star wars fans and they and they would be like and there'd be like thumbnails with like big text mm. like is ray the devil yeah that kind or, of stuff or like yeah. is <laughs> chewbacca secretly palpatine like all this kind of stuff just just attaching mm. itself to what people are clicking on now. and uh here recently they that the, the well is dry. The oasis yeah. is gone. And uh, there's always no going to be a market, but it's not the big market. It's not the it big was. market. It's not taking and, up all the space. And because these things were constantly being released and there was something to look forward to, or there was a preview they could always talk about. Mm-hmm. They, they could, these people could make video after video, after video, mm-hmm. 10 minute videos daily yeah. about star Wars or Marvel projects that weren't even out yet. Oh yeah. Uh, now that, what are we looking forward to today? Madam Web? Uh, it's like... <laughs> we got a few, but it's only like a couple of things coming up. Yeah, it's, it's like only, Deadpool it's, 3. There's, there's a potential there's a to be lot, excited about that. And there's like, also like a year before that one comes out. It's yeah, like out for a while. It's the summer. Oh, is it? It's the summer. Yeah. I thought it was 2025. No, 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 no. It's like the only Marvel superhero movie that isn't from Sony. Okay. That's coming out this year. Because Sony's got Madam Web, and Craven, Craven the, the Hunter, Hunter <laughs> and I think Venom 3? I think there's a third one coming out from Sony. Oh, wait. Oh. Uh, uh, Beyond the Spider-Verse might come out as well. I'm not sure when that got bumped. Oh, well, too. we'll see. Because yeah, that got that bumped because yeah. of, of the strike and yeah. they hadn't finished it yet. So, um, I don't know. But, and I know the last one had some <laughs> bad production practices. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Agreed. The... Uh, my point being, all, all of this ecosystem, all these like really breathless video makers don't know what to feed on. Yeah. And it's like they're they're searching th- it's like they're searching through the dirt looking for some sustenance and they're finding truffles. And uh, <laughs> because I'm seeing these video essays on like May December yeah. and the zone of interest and we're getting these same like salacious headlines. Most disturbing film ever says zone of interest. Yeah. Like honestly, yeah. there's an argument. And it's like even. you guys are finally finding real nutrition. Yeah. It you you're learning that geekery mm-hmm. was always a path to more complex art than, well, than sort of the, the really simple stories you were reading. And that's from like the uh, art. That's like the, and, and you posted about this and yeah. I was like, this is like watching your kids go to college. Like, Oh, they're growing up. Yeah, they, they figured something out. Sunrise, sunset. But, uh, there's, there's, there's I'd, another... I'd love to, I haven't watched many of those essays. It's like, yeah, and the, I was yeah. watching zone of it. It's really, Humanity has done some really horrible <laughs> yeah. things to their fellow people. Like, no, no, just like, 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 really like getting really into those it. Those are very sobering movies. Yeah. Even May December, which has like a little camp value once in a while, and there's some funny moments. It's a bleak film in many, many ways. Um, what I think is interesting about that, and leaving out the specific context, is that's what that's what the publications were supposed to be like for in like a perfect world. You release some material that's a bit pandering Mm -hmm. because people will click on that. People will buy that newspaper, whatever. But once they're there, you need to give them something to actually, you know, uh, some sustenance. And we kind of forgot to do that for a while, a lot of these places. And so, like, we, they've just been cranking out nothing but Marvel shit, and now it's like, okay, listen, we've got the audience, they've already subscribed, and they hit that bell icon, so whenever I put something out, they mm. know about it. If I put out something for, like, a really artistically 
significant or complicated movie that isn't outside that is outside the franchise, will they click? Hmm. They should. Some, you, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get everybody, but you'll it'll be enough to justify it. And I think that's what it always should have been. It should have been... It, it, it's like there's nothing wrong with eating hamburgers so long as it's not all you eat, then it's not yeah. really a healthy diet. Right, right. So it, we, we, there's so many places that go by on just feeding people hamburgers constantly. And then after a while, you come in, it's like, oh, we have a special on broccoli today. Really? <laughs> broccoli you say and it's good it's, it's pretty good well fuck it let's try some broccoli let's give it a try and then and then like your body's just like oh my god you know like when you haven't had like any fruits or veg in like a day or something like that and mm. then all of a sudden you have a, a bite of salad or a broccoli or, or an apple or something and then you can't stop eating it because your body just knows it needs those nutrients yeah yeah I feel the same way about art but anyway um uh, in a roundabout way, this this will lead us back to some of the movies we're talking about today because we're still it, it may be February, but it's honorary January because because <laughs> there's uh, we're still like, we're still getting some junk. Yeah. So what what are we talking about this this week? week yeah. On on that's a longer preamble than usual. Uh, this week on critically acclaimed, uh, we're reviewing Matthew Vaughn's latest spy romp, Argyle. Uh, we're, we're reviewing the new animated film written by Charlie Kaufman, which I didn't know was a thing until you mentioned it a couple of days ago. Yeah, that, that's, ne- how, that's our Netflix hopper. Thanks, uh, Netflix. It's a yeah. fucking new... Char- I mean, he didn't direct it, but it's a new Charlie Kaufman screenplay. Mm. Then, like, no one's even talking about Even the Charlie Kaufman fans don't even know about it. Uh, it's called Orion in the Dark. We'll be reviewing that. Uh, a couple movies you saw that I didn't... How to Have Sex... Which sounds like a very informative documentary. Uh, and then Scrambled, which mm-hmm. I assume is about breakfast. Uh, it's it's about a, a woman who is debating whether or not she wants to freeze her eggs. Ah, okay. Well, that's slightly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly, we're going to be reviewing the new documentary on Shudder called Dario Argento Panico, uh, which is a documentary about the life and films of Dario Argento, who is one of the most exciting and influential horror filmmakers who has ever lived. Uh, uh, and he's still and, with us, thank and, goodness. And slowly became one of the worst. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that. And, and, yeah, we'll talk a lot about uh, Dario Argento because that, that's a whole big conversation. But uh, it's still still be someone whose work you should be familiar with, I hope. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let's just jump right in. So the biggest release of the weekend, even though it didn't do great, uh, is... Like, it, it opened with like $18 million. It cost yeah. $200 million to make. When I like, found out this movie cost $200 million, yeah. I was like... Fucking how? Because there's really, it's not, I mean, it's not a uh, small movie, but it's also not that huge. Well, and it's, it's not it's the like, cast. It, a lot the of cast it isn't like, even that huge. But you get a big, you get someone like Samuel L. Jackson, you're going to chill out. He's there for to like get two Samuel days. <laughs> He's like two days of shooting in that movie. There's another 25 million right there, I'm All sure, right. for that two days. Anyway, Argyle is, uh, it's the latest one from Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn. Uh, had a really promising start. He did Layer Cake, which is one of the better of the like post. I think he even produced some of Guy Ritchie's movies, like yeah, the, the, the post Guy Ritchie British crime movies. The 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 neo bloke films, you might call them. Yeah, and that's actually the film that kind of like shot Daniel Craig into the limelight, right. and then he got James Bond after that. And it's a good movie. Uh, he did Stardust, which is one of the better Neil Gaiman adaptations. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, but I always, I really liked it. Uh, he did X-Men First Class, which is certainly one of the better films in that franchise. Uh, 
it, it it's it's it got a, got it's got highs and lows. It's got highs. Uh, and, they all have highs and lows, but yeah. I, I think it's one of the better ones. Uh, and then he started making these like really adolescent movies in the 2010s. He made Kick Ass, which might have been just before the 2010s, uh, which is an adaptation of a Mark Miller comic book, and not a huge fan of the source material. And I do not think he cracked it. I know some people no. love that movie, but um, I found it just unpleasant and. I, I, I feel I feel like a narc using this word, but it, it feels like an irresponsible movie in the way that it handles violence, especially with young people. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it, um, I find it in poor taste. Whether or not you agree, I find it, it, it in poor it's taste. A, it's an incredibly poor taste. Uh, Kickass and the film he did after that, um, Kingsman, yeah. the Secret Service, uh, which is sort has a setup of like James Bond meets Harry Potter. Like, a, a, ki- yeah. a kid is inducted into secret society and gets to become a spy. And mm-hmm. in the Kingsman movies, um, the way you dress is, and, like, the way you, like, comport yourself is mm. just as important as the spy work. Yeah. Like, you have to be really well-groomed. It's very style-forward. Yeah. Which, to be fair, a lot of, like, the spy movies it's riffing mm. on always were. They right. just now, didn't make it a plot point. Uh in in Kingsman, it's it's a plot point. Yeah. They you know they have all these old slogans. You know, clothes maketh the man, and yeah. uh, the the way you behave, all everything that you present superficially is the most important. I'm getting at a point here about his <laughs> filmography. You're, you're you're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't seen all of the Kingsman movies because honestly, they lost me really early. Uh, oh, so I'm oh not... they're they're repellent okay i, I saw I, the first I, I, one i hate kick ass I, I, I hate the kingsman movies i almost <laughs> like the kingsman uh, the first kingsman movie and then they made some decisions that just turned mm. me right the hell off yeah uh but i got this impression from matthew vaughn and again this isn't based on seeing every single one of his movies grain of salt but this is where i'm coming from going into argyle i get the impression from matthew vaughn that he is he has a, I don't know if it's a, a, a particular veracity or just a soft spot for really slick adolescent crap. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing terribly <clears throat> wrong in theory with adolescent crap. A lot of people are adolescents, mm-hmm. it, it literally are at heart, and sure, it makes movies for them. That's fine. But it's so much effort that goes into these movies, and, and so many of the ones that I've seen are just... I, I find I, I find them so superficial that I get bored real fast. There's so much happening, I shouldn't be bored. Mm. Why am I bored? Because none of it matters. None of it matters. Uh, yeah. He and his attitude is really uh, brazen. It's really over oversimplified. Yeah, he doesn't have much of a point of view, mm. especially not in something like Argyle, where he's trying to scale back the violence. Yeah. Um, I can at least be grateful mm. that Argyle doesn't have a, a sort of a toxic attitude behind it. Well, there's not, there's, it's not about anything significant. Mm. Either, even though it's about like the world stage, there's it's trying to be as apolitical as possible yeah. so that you can just enjoy the superficial trappings of the spy genre. And I'm not going to lie, the superficial trappings of the spy genre can be fun. Oh, yeah. It absolutely can be fun. There's well, a reason we mo- keep going back to it over and over Most again. of the James Bond movies are pretty fun. surfacey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just when, the, when you actually get into the realities of the political arena, it gets really complicated. But, you know, he's not making a Jean Le Carré movie. Hmm. He's making superficial crap, which is weird because Argyle is about a woman who writes superficial spy novels who is somehow compared to Jean Le Carré. 
Here's the basic pitch of Argyle. And Argyle is one of those movies that has so many twists that we, we, we can only take you so far into the movie yeah, without getting to rude spoiler territory. Later on, it, yeah. it, and I'll warn you when I get to it, I'm going to compare it to another movie. Because it, it resembles it's, another movie very strongly, but yes. it, if I tell you what movie it is, it constitutes a spoiler. And, and I'm so, actually yeah. hesitant to even have that conversation, but we'll, we'll, we'll warn you when we get to that point. But we're going to take you a little ways into the movie, because it's one of those ones with a lot of plot reveals. But this is... I actually haven't seen the trailer, but if I were writing the trailer, if I were like editing the trailer, uh, this is as far as I would take you. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard plays uh, a woman who has written best-selling spy novels about a super spy named Argyle. Argyle is played in the movie in a sequence, in a series of like fantasy sequences. They play like fake movies in movies. Mm. Um, You know, like fake movies in movies tend to be like extra fake so that you don't confuse them with the original movie. And also that kind of makes the actual movie they're in hopefully look a little better. They're doing that, but no one's made a movie out of Argyle. This is, we're just seeing the book, basically. Mm. And uh, in the book slash fake movie, he's played by Henry Cavill. She's a best-selling author. People say, like, you're, you're such a great spy author that... Uh, and they're so well-researched and they're so accurate that real spies read your work and they've predicted important political events. You are so detail-oriented that we're comparing your work to Jean Le Carré. The first scene in the movie involves Henry Cavill power sliding a broken car mm. for about half a mile <laughs> on rooftops. And this is what everyone's saying in the second scene is the most realistic spy book ever written. Mm. Already I have some problems. But the basic plot is this. She's, uh, that's You know what? That's a conceit I'm willing to buy. I'm willing. I'd be willing to buy it it's, if... Here's if, the deal. You can because only ask here's, me to buy so much. Here's the thing. When, when you're talking about, and we've, we've complained about this a lot, uh-huh. uh, whenever there's a work of art within a film, mm-hmm. uh, a, a film within a film, or a painting, or a book that's in a movie that is mm-hmm. said by the other characters to be one of the greatest of all time, right. uh, the filmmakers have written themselves into a co- corner already, because yes. they either have to make the greatest thing of all time, mm-hmm. or we kind of have to buy that whatever that is being presented to us has to be accepted in the fictional universe of the movie. Right. Within as this one of the universe, yeah. this would be considered good. So exactly. I'm, yeah. I, and I'm willing to accept that right. for the most part. If that was the only issue I had with the movie, I might not even bring it up. Uh, but the plot kicks off when she's uh, writing her fifth book, and it turns out she sucks at endings. Because we, we see that that opening scene was like the last scene in her previous book, and it ends with kind of a non-cliffhanger, just kind of like a plot revelation, and then it's like, oh, what are we going to do next? End of the book. I don't know why that would be satisfying. She's doing another one of those, and it's a crappy ending, and even her mom, who's played by the great Catherine O'Hara, says, your ending sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, come on over, uh, and we will talk about the ending, and we'll try to come up with something better. And so she gets on a train to go see her mom, and then someone sits across from her, and it's Sam Rockwell. And it turns out Sam Rockwell is A, a fan, and B, an actual spy. And he is here to protect her because something in her books has completely it, dovetailed it, with a real-life evil spy plot. And now the bad guys are trying to capture her. Because so, it's, it looks like she knows too much. Yeah, well, she looks like she knows too much, but it also looks like she she like the next big plot points in her book could reveal information that the bad guys want to know. Mm-hmm. But she hasn't written that part yet. So now he's got to like carry her around like Europe and shit from like one 
set piece to another, trying to get her to continue writing the book so that they will know what to do next. It's very meta. It's not a bad pitch, honestly. As, no, it's, it's as, fine, yeah. As, uh, as a riff on, like, sort of romancing the stone, mm. I've written all of these adventure stories and now I have to live one. That's mm. not bad. That's not bad at all. That's fine. And and but my, my, One of my favorite uh, versions of that story was uh, mm. a film from the late 80s called Delirious. Uh, oh, I think it was early 90s, actually. Early, uh, around yeah. there. Um, but it yeah. starred John Candy as a, a writer of soap operas. Yeah. Who, thanks to... It was like a fantasy magical conceit. He... Uh, he hit his head, he woke up, and he was within the soap opera he wrote. Yeah. He was suddenly a character on the show. Yeah. But he was still the writer of the show. Yeah. And he was able to uh, sit at his typewriter and write scenes and alter reality from within the show. Yeah. So he made himself into, like, the hero. and mm-hmm. yeah. It's a fun uh, premise, and there's some fun stuff in that movie. There's mm-hmm. also a really horrifying bit with, I think it's Dylan Baker, as, like, a guy who's, like, oh, sick he, and his he, brother is, like... And he, for, he forgets to, like make him well again so his sickness just gets worse and worse and his hair starts falling out it's like really Cronenbergian for just this one character and I remember as a kid being like I want to like the rest of the movie because it's kind of clever and I love soap operas as well but um, that bit was so horrifying it made me not want to watch it (laughs) saying this like I don't know why I'm so thirsty I I don't think I've seen that movie in like 30 years because of that scene (laughs) but that's that's a good but it's another it's it's a good pitch um and there's a lot of action set pieces, and then of course there's a twist, and then there's multiple twists beyond that. And then um, there's more twists, and then there's yeah. more twists, because eventually this movie stops moving forward so much as it just reveals new twists. Yeah, and uh, the that's where they start losing. Yeah, there's after there's a while. Uh, great cast. You know, we oh, mentioned yeah. Samuel Jackson. Uh, mm. Brian Cranston plays one of the bad guys. Mm-hmm. He was called, he's the one. Who's the one who gets like sit in that big like computer bank and's like mm-hmm. bring me somebody's head he gets to have a big speech and then like at the end of the speech he kills a guy really Mm. dramatically you know classic spy shit um and Mm. and honestly sam rockwell he used to be hollywood's secret weapon (laughs) and then the secret got out he won an oscar and he just Mm. you know and then it's like you forgot that this was the guy who played zaphod bebelbrox you know (laughs) this is the guy who like was the bad guy in the first charlie's angels who danced the disco and we Mm. fell in love with him so, look, I have never had an issue with Sam Rockwell. Oh, no, he is nor excellent. I. I don't like everything um, he's ever done, but he's great. Like it's it, nice to see him get to have fun again, is my point. And, and he's also the lead role. He's like yeah. one of the main... Yeah. He he and Bryce Dallas Howard are the main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her. And she is great. She's so uh, good. And she, has, uh, and she gets to do a lot in the movie. She's mm-hmm. on the screen most of the time. It's pretty much she almost gets, every scene, yeah, yeah, she gets to uh, be kind of, you know, this nebbishy writer, but at the same time gets to do all the action stuff, too. And, yeah. and she's equally capable at both. There's yeah. a, um, without revealing too much, there's a fun action sequence later that uh, pertains to, to uh, ice skating. Yeah, uh, that's, that's one where, at that point, the movie had kind of lost me, but that sequence was so ridiculous, mm. I was like, I can't be mad right now. This yeah, is, it's this just, is fun in any context. Standalone, it's actually yeah. like a really fun sequence, and she gets to do some pretty yeah. fun things in that scene. Agreed. Um, however, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's the big however. Um, there is no uh, wit... Or anything interesting going on in this movie. There's no point of view in this movie. I don't know what they're trying to unpack about the spy genre. Nothing, it seems. No. Uh, It just becomes about plot. They have nothing to say about Uh, the spy genre. There's nothing to say about fiction. They have nothing to say about spies or mm. espionage. In fact, uh, even the bad guys, it's like, we have to stop these bad guys. What are they trying to do? Well, the bad guys are trying to stop Bryce Dallas Howard from stopping them. 
But what are they trying to do? Yeah, and, what, and there's what, what? What are they up to? Do I disagree with them? Or are they trying to do something? By, what? They don't by the time they get far. to the end, there's the, uh, there's a scene a uh, scene right at the end of the movie where like there's a countdown of some kind, and uh, mm. I'm being vague here. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's and, fine. Movie. There's a countdown. And there's a countdown, and uh, I realized okay, this is a good countdown in terms of like action because there's mounting action, something's mm. counting down, something's going to happen when they, we reach the countdown, and I had to fight to remember what the significance of that countdown was. Yeah. Like, what, what's going to happen? At, wait, what's, what is that? And they're stopping mm-hmm. it and starting it. What? How does, uh, how, does this even affect me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, and the problem is, and it has, it has that really obnoxious, uh, and this is something you see with a lot of modern blockbusters. People have been complaining about this for the last decade, mm. uh, where it's really artificial. Yeah. You can tell that actors weren't on set together. They're clearly yeah. filming a lot on green screens. Yeah. Um, when they do uh, like stunt spectaculars, it just becomes an animated sequence. Uh, there, um, there's a whole recurring bit where uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's character has brought her cat with her, and it's mm. like a little cat backpack with like a little yeah. bubble on the side. Um, Claudia, and, Claudia Schiffer's personal cat, I learned. I did not know that. Because she's married to the director. But, um, a l- I did not know that either. Mm. Uh, a lot of the time in the movie, that cat is CGI. Yeah. And I'm not saying I need the... Because they're, they're like doing things like stunts. and like, yeah, don't put a cat in that situation. That would be terrible but also when it's just like on a table mm-hmm. and i'm like can you just have a cat just on the get table? a real fucking yeah. cat like people have been doing that since the dawn of it like we don't yeah it just um, needs to be there it can even do others it doesn't even have to hit its mark as long as it's in know, the scene uh, you're fine I, f- I find it really just that that kind of un- unnecessary artificiality mm. is distracting after a while yeah. especially well, when it's the whole movie also it might be unfair to compare this to like a Mission Impossible picture, but maybe not because they're you know, both spy movies. They're both two hundred million dollar um, action extravaganzas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the filmmakers of those Mission Impossible movies have gone well out of their way mm-hmm. to make sure you, the audience, know that their the stunts are at least somewhat genuine. There's there's the a stunt of risk involved. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the the driving is really real, and mm-hmm. you know Tom Cruise gets to do one spectacular stunt per movie. At like, least clings onto the side of a plane, drives a motorcycle off a cliff, that kind yeah. of stuff. And and that's real. Yeah. And he'll and he'll let you know that he'll go out on the publicity <laughs> they, circuit and tell you all about it. Desperate uh, to let you know that because that's a yeah. big selling point. And Even more than Tom Cruise, that's a selling point. But that's all. That all comes from kind of a, a grindhouse era of action cinema where if all you have is a shitty Oldsmobile, a mm. ramp, and a single stick of dynamite, <laughs> you're going to put yourself in danger to blow that shit up. Does it look good? No. But is it amazing? Yes. Well, I would argue because fil- the filmmakers actually blew something up. They actually yeah. jumped a car over something. They got a, a trained, I would hope, unharmed stunt performer right. to, to set themselves on fire and jump off a cliff. Um, and that's exciting because somebody did that. There's, There's yeah. a moment of, uh, 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 an element of actual truth to an action sequence that's using real stunts. Mm-hmm. You look at something like Argyle and the last decade of action cinema, Mm-hmm. Especially the high end, super high budget. There are exceptions movies. to this rule, yeah. but there's it's a rule for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're filming against green screens. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get a stunt performer to do some fight choreography, but mm-hmm. they're superpower beings most of the time. Yeah, so or, it's, or it's, a lot or of it's edited to hell to hide the fact that it's not the real actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and listen, and I, so mm. what? Surely there's something exciting intellectually there. Yeah, but the thrill of seeing something real like things blowing up or people Mm. doing something that's actually dangerous and make you feel like there is an element of risk and excitement Mm -hmm. is 
completely gone from something like Argyle. Well, nothing because is, it looks so artificial. Well, it, there's nothing is ventured, and so nothing mm. is gained. I'm going to say two things about that. Uh, firstly, I think it goes back way beyond uh, uh, Grindhouse. I think it goes mm. back to the silent era when they would do like, oh, like, the, a, like Buster Keaton, for yeah, instance, you in the general. Fake yeah, yeah. that shit. I mean, some of it they figured out how, but you, a lot of it they just couldn't fake. Mm. They literally dropped a house on him, <laughs> and if that house moved slightly, he'd be dead. If but he, he missed his mark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's like just stood there straight. People actually couldn't look. They, like, filmed that sequence without looking, just in case he died. <laughs> it was a real thing. Now, should that have been necessary? No, but it's incredible cinema. Mm. Nowadays... We're talking about it a century later. Yeah, nowadays, you don't have to go through all of that to do those scenes. And you know what? I don't want people to put their lives at risk. I don't want, you know, any unnecessary danger on the set. I, one of my uh, things that I'm really annoyed by in movies, I find very distracting... And it's something that even to this day rarely looks good. CGI fire. Hmm. It almost never looks convincing. On the other hand, fire is really fucking dangerous. And I'm not going to begrudge them not setting shit on fire on the set. But that level of artificiality that we add to our action sequences, there there, there are times when it can work great. Uh, One movie that, the CGI has aged a bit. But uh, one movie I think I thought did it really well was uh, Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2. Where there's a lot of fight sequences, and a lot of the fight sequences are real. They did the action choreography, they look great. But then there are moments where all of a sudden, in the middle of a shot, the character becomes a CGI creation just so they could do one ridiculous jump. Okay. To remind you that they're super powered, and then like the camera would swing over in one incredible way, and then mm. we come back. Well, when so you, it's, yeah, when it's, you cut it's, back and forth, uh, you're using um, both techniques to uh, make it both, uh, and then both of them are heightening each other. Uh, uh, speaking of Del Toro, um, there's these big monsters in his movie Hellboy. Yeah, uh, and in long shots, there are these gigantic monsters that have to like run, and they have gigantic claws, and they're like twelve feet long. Yeah. Um, those are CGI creations. Yeah. That's the best way to animate them. You cut to a close-up, it's a real practical yeah. monster. Yeah. So it, it has some weight to it. Um, Everything I, I'm reminded of feels fake compared to that. Yeah, yeah I'm so. reminded of uh, something Sean Cunningham said about uh, the Friday the 13th movies. Yeah. Um, you, if you have a machete, you show somebody cutting something with it first. Yeah. So when... Your you, brain thinks that's a real machete Yeah, so now. when you yeah. swap it out for the, the prop machete later on and stab somebody with mm-hmm. it... Uh, it, it has more weight to it. It has yeah. more reality to it. A lot of there's the, there are no moments like that. Yeah, in something like Argyle, it's there, all fake. There's there's a lot of the things that uh, we do in movies. Some things we take for granted uh, have a purpose, and the purpose is that kind of showmanship. You, you ever ask yourself, hey, why do you, why in movies and so many action movies when there's about to be a fight scene, do people take off their shirts? Is that really necessary? And the answer is, generally speaking, no. But if they've taken off their shirts, we know they're not wearing any padding. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's that's part of it. That's We don't always think about that, but there we go. We know that that's an actual bit of contact, at least theoretically. Um, so all of, that, all of that artificiality in Argyle, there's nothing to temper it. There's nothing real to temper it. The characters don't feel real. The situations don't feel real. The locations don't feel real. The action doesn't feel real. Sometimes it's fun in spite of that, but mostly it's not. The thing for me that I feel like I want to like teach a class and how not to do this with Argyle is it's not just that there are twists. Lots of movies have twists. I'm happy with movies that even have a bunch of twists. When you start relying on twists to propel the story forward constantly, mm. one, that's all you've got. All you've got is a certain amount of surprise. Oh, I didn't see that one coming, did you? And when we've completely, at that point, we've sacrificed 
character development. We've sacrificed our emotional investment in the story because you can't get emotionally invested in the story because the rug's always going to get pulled out from under you. But if you're going to pull all of these twists, they need to kind of make sense. You, you, they don't all have to make perfect sense. These are weird, wacky movies. I'm, I'm okay with it being broad. But with Argyle, after there's like the first twist, I'm like, Okay, yeah, okay, fair, that's okay, mm-hmm. interesting. And then there's another twist on top of that, I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't quite make sense. By the eighth twist, and we're not done with them yet, I realized that long ago, every twist started making the other twists not make any sense. And yeah. by the end of the movie, the fundamental premise of the movie, as we now have come to understand it, how the plot actually worked, was completely unnecessary and absolutely nothing we just saw needed to happen, even mm. within the world of the film. And that right yeah, there makes the movie feel like it's wasting my time. It's it's wasting a lot of our time. And the conceit that um, the Bryce Dallas Howard character <coughs> is writing these spy novels and we get to see inside of them. Yeah. Um, that kind of meta narrative serves no function. Uh, there's no contrast. It's, it's, there's uh, no. You know, it's. It, I understand you're you're trying to sort of have broad action sequences that would only play if Bryce Dallas Howard's life was like humdrum and kind of ordinary in comparison, mm-hmm. but her, her home and her life is just as colorful and brisk. And she's one of the best CGI, selling authors yeah. in the world. So she, she, she's already kind of glamorous. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I'm not sure if you saw the lost city, the one with Sandra Bullock. No, I missed that. Um, one. I, it sounded like a similar premise. That's another yeah. one. She's a, an author of adventure novels and she's been, but she was originally uh, an anthropologist and archaeologist, so all of her details were really correct. So yeah. she was hijacked by a rich guy. To it's similar to this movie where like, allegedly all of her spy yeah. stuff is accurate. But she's really weird and awkward and hates it. Okay. That's like a big part of that movie. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. She is ill-equipped to go on an adventure. Ah. Uh, so when she, when she finds herself in that scenario, she's fish out of water. She has to learn to be a little bit more, more resourceful. Mm. I don't get that sense with Bryce Dallas Howard. No. She feels really comfortable in a lot of this spy stuff. Well, at first, um, no, but it's also that, in, that but is, it's also in kind of a wacky screwball comedy kind of way yeah. where there's... And honestly, they have a great rapport. If The mm. scenes in this movie that work usually work because Sam Rockwell and Bryce Dallas Howard have good chemistry together. But the things that they actually have to do kind of run counter to that light rapport. Like, there's a whole sequence in this movie, it's not, this isn't a spoiler, it's just a, a gag, where he has to fight his way through, like, a whole hallway through, full of, we think, bad guys, we assume. And he tells Bryce Dallas Howard, hey, listen, I know you're, you're just, like, an author, you don't really do this, but after I, like, knock a guy out, I need you to stomp on their heads until they die. And she's like, no! Mm. I, I, it's not that hard. You're just gonna pretty like, like this, twist a little bit, mm. and just give it a stomp. Heads are way more fragile than you might have thought. It's going to be real easy. It'll just go right through their skull. And she's like, no! That, that's not really cute. <laughs> it's actually really dark. Yeah. And I don't think the movie understands um, that. Well, and, and that's that's where I started seeing Matthew Vaughn sneak through. And yeah. if... Uh, uh, minor spoiler, she doesn't actually stomp on the guy's head. Uh, yeah. she, she's like poised to for a minute, but then she's like, no, I'm not... Uh, that's not who I am. Yeah, yeah exactly, um, yeah. I fully expected Matthew Vaughn to go that route. Yeah. Take, like, taking human lives is fun and whimsical. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have any kind of viewpoint on violence other than more of it is good. Yeah, it's uh, neat. Yeah. D- it's like, murder is fun. 
okay, there's context, you know, so the bad guys and the good guys murder with equal violence. You're not giving me anything here, Matthew. Yeah, there's no, there's um, no... It, she doesn't so see, I, in that honestly, moment, I'm glad that the filmmakers showed a little restraint in that one scene. And yet, um, shortly afterwards, we find out that she probably should have done it. Yeah, well, <laughs> which, which but then, she, she didn't, and that's the important that thing. That is, I suppose, the important she, thing. She yes. probably should have. No, she shouldn't have, because that's murder. <laughs> agreed, agreed. No, it, it makes her moral, don't get me wrong, yeah. but the movie also argues that it would have been yeah. pragmatic. I suppose so. Which is, somewhat undermines that. But, yeah. um, the, but uh, the, you, a, a lot of, like, the yeah, the superficial style is all he's really interested in. Yeah. And, uh... Sometimes it's it gets, well, I mean, it, bits it, here and there. It, it, it looks nice, but I'm not engaged. I'm yeah. not excited by this movie. Just sort of w- looking at colorful things happening. Yeah, there, there's a way, and of course, with every single uh, action sequence, he likes to drop, you know, do a, a nice big needle drop. <laughs> yeah, and, a lot and, of them have, and that, that yeah. means, and the needle drops are very haphazard. Like they're giving an attitude to a scene that doesn't necessarily need in that moment. Yeah. Oh, it's it drives the scene forward. Sure, there's a lot of exciting pop songs. Yeah. Um, uh, Ariana DeBose sings like this disco piece over the credits. That, yeah, there's there's actually a good they, um, uh, there's there's kind of a James Bondian theme towards the end that's yeah. actually pretty good. Actually, it yeah. wouldn't have been the wouldn't have been it would have been one of the better James Bond themes in the last ten twenty uh, years. Honestly, if it had been a proper one, yeah. Uh, and that that kind of stuff is fun, but you're you're not pointed in any kind in of service direction. of what yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh, I was getting at something else as well. Well, one thing you were going to bring up, and I want to, I'd like to do it vaguely if we can, is that as more of this movie reveals itself and as it reveals, here's what we're really doing. No, no, but here's what we're really doing. Actually, here's what we're really doing. You start realizing that every single thing they're doing is very specifically a movie you've seen before. Not kind of like a movie you've seen before, uh, yeah, but like, no, seriously, I've seen this movie and it's a fact, better movie. It's it's a better movie and it has Samuel L. Jackson in it. It's, yeah. you know, it, it's that's all I'm going to give you. Right yeah. Now. There's another there's another Samuel L. Jackson movie that this movie strongly resembles. Uh-huh. That is way better than this movie that I would like to recommend you find, but just go through Samuel L. Jackson's filmography. It's big, so it's not too big a hint. Yeah, but but it, not only is it big, he's done a lot of spy movies. Yeah. He's uh, in like the Triple X movies. That's true. Maybe it's those, maybe it's not. He's and it might not even be a spy movie, but, but when you I'll, want I'll when say you see the movie, if you're familiar with the movie we're talking about, it'll be like, Yeah, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> hmm. Hmm. It's a little on the nose, don't um, we think? I'm trying to like, what's another way I can give a hint without giving away yeah. what it is? Uh, um, just look look through Samuel L. Jackson's filmography. Yeah. Find uh, a spy caper he was in. Yeah. Sometime in the late nineties. That's it. And that, uh, that's more than and, enough. And watch that movie. That's more than enough. Hmm. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. Argyle. Uh, uh. I. It's bad. I don't hate it or mm. anything. It doesn't do anything that like pisses me off it just doesn't yeah, that's... work so there are people who might be able to like just sort of just sort of enjoy the superficiality and that's fine if that's what you're in the mood for i totally get it if this makes it sound like something like yeah it sounds like it might be a fun time maybe it would be but that's it's not our job to have that be our upper standard and there are better versions of this that the movie fucking practically yells the name of like it might say hey isn't like, that Let's do the scene from this movie. They might as well have yelled. That's mm-hmm. a better movie. Um, anyway, Argyle. Uh, let's talk about another film. A very different film. Let's talk about a new uh, animated film on Netflix called Orion and the Dark. <laughs> uh, which is about Orion and, get this, 
The Dark. Uh, the Dark is a character in this movie. Yeah. Uh, the concept is, of darkness. The concept of, of darkness. Um, I, I dug this movie uh, because yeah. it it's a kid's movie. It's okay for kids, yeah. but it is like the Charlie Kaufman-esque thing you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in a very erotic kid's movie. It, yeah. Uh, so Orion uh, is the main character, and he begins the movie with this incredibly long litany of everything that frightens him. And he's like 12. He's, yeah. He's like 12 or 13. He's a kid. And... And and he has he's like downright neurotic about yeah. all of his fears. He's fear afraid of you know the school bully. That's understandable. Yeah. Being embarrassed. That's understandable. But also uh, irrational fears like he's afraid he's going to use the public toilet and it's going to clog and flood the school. And that's everyone's going to know he and, and, did it yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I, listen, I this is this isn't something they mention in the movie, but mm. that's the type of character you introduce that character. I'm probably on board. <laughs> the other day, like literally yesterday, if memory serves. Uh, no, two days ago. Two days ago, I had to go to the supermarket in the morning to do a bit of shopping. Later in the afternoon, I realized, oh, wait, we need something else. And I w- went to the same supermarket again four hours later. And I got to the supermarket, and I sat in my car, and I was like, they're going to notice I'm back. <laughs> they're going to think I don't know how to shop. They're going to be like, who is this fucking guy who can't manage his time? I had to psych myself up for five minutes just to show my face in the same supermarket twice in a day. <laughs> I understand people with social anxiety in a movie, and you've immediately won me over. So he's afraid of everything, and he's also, his biggest fear, as is true for a lot of kids, in fact, I think I probably overstated his age, I think he's younger than 12 or 13, um, his biggest fear is the dark. Hmm. A lot of people, I used to be afraid of the dark. Uh and he's so terrified of the dark that when there's like his night, there's like a power outage and his night lights fail, he panics and he screams. And then darkness comes out and says, dude, what the hell? Yeah, this big cloaked figure with glowing blue eyes yeah. who's played by Paul Walter Hauser. Yeah. And, and he's just like, hey, listen, a lot of people are afraid of me, but dude, you're the worst. <laughs> like, you make me feel bad about myself. Well, and and uh, the, the dark says, yeah. you know what? I, I have... Because of the way these things work. I have 24 hours to make you like the dark. Uh, Over the course of the movie, we learn that the dark, because so many people are afraid of him, is neurotic. Darkness darkness itself is neurotic. That is so Charlie Kaufman. (laughs) Like, the darkness Uh, is like, because... And it's true. The way you see yourself isn't completely divorced from the way other people view you. mm -hmm. And depending on how sensitive you are, or what kind of day you're having, or, or your mindset, or whatever, it's very easy to let other people define you if you're not careful. And so many people are afraid of the dark. So many people equate darkness with evil mm-hmm. and all that kind of shit uh, that he starts to believe it himself. And so part of it is he's trying to show this kid there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark, which is a very kid story premise. Mm-hmm. But also he's trying to prove that he's not a bad guy, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. adds a I, wonderful level of complexity. I, and I love, I love that. Um, the, and that's a very Pixar premise. And sure. in fact, we meet other, they call them night entities uh, throughout mm. the course of this movie. There's a, a being that represents dreams. Yeah. There's a little little squeaky guy that represents quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one that represents noises that you hear at night. Mysterious like, noises. Know, mysterious noises. There's one that represents insomnia, mm. which even the kids just like, 
why do we need that? Like, <laughs> why is that important? And I love insomnia because insomnia like goes at the people who are sleeping and whispers in their ear, mm. "You're gonna get fired. Oh no, you should get, you shouldn't blow that deadline. <laughs> oh god." Yeah, and they sit bolt upright and they can't yeah. sleep anymore. Right? It gets to a point, and I put a screenshot of this on my mm. uh, on my Twitter because boy, do I feel this where. She's not worried about her job. She's not worried about her family relationships. He's like, okay, I gotta pull out the big guns. And he pulls out an audio cassette called Stupid Thing I Said in the Fourth Grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have shit like that that I said when I was a kid. I would be surprised if any other human being remembers it. Yeah. But it still makes me feel we've, like we've a all, jackass. Oh, I got that. I, oh, I'm, my God. Oh, I, I got a lot of those. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I look back on my childhood and I picture a, a pretty pleasant, happy time in my mm. life. But yeah, there's a lot of dark shit I, see, I recall. See, as I well. don't. I only remember the embarrassing shit. Oh, I'm so shit. sorry. I do not like looking back on that level part of my past. Yeah, but, but, anyway. I, I have a very specific happiest memory, and it's when I was around ten. So, oh, that's nice. Yeah, uh, I a, that, a, a lot of my happiest memories are from when I was a kid. So I, I when I see a movie like this, that I, I kind of went on my marriage. I think on my wedding. Right. I think it's my happiest memory, but like that was like when I was in my thirties, so like it was like three shitty decades, yeah. and then finally something nice happened. Ah, this movie was made for me. <laughs> yeah. But I, I feel like this film does understand something about little kids, and mm. I've said this about kid movies before. I think little kids do like to be scared. I yeah. think little kids like to watch scary movies and sort of poke a, around at the edges of their fear. And I think little kids also like sad stories. Yeah. Uh, stories that are about fear and sadness and things falling apart. They're, they're exploring uh, emotional extremes, aren't right. they? Well, kids um, kids haven't learned to, at least not initially, yeah. to be guarded in their emotions. They feel things very powerfully because they're feeling all these things for the first time. Mm. So movies that discuss those emotions in those very honest, mm. very unfiltered terms, I think connect with us when we're young. Yeah. Even mm. if they are very powerful. There's a reason Pixar wants to make you cry so bad. Because mm. kids cry. <laughs> <laughs> now they're feeling shit that yeah, intensely. But, um... Pixar movies, for however emotionally honest some of them might be, and some of them are really great, yeah. um, do tend to come out on the side of sentimentality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not in a bad way. Uh, I think a lot of them are incredibly effective. A couple so, of them, maybe one or two in a bad way, but mostly good. Uh, more recently, some of them aren't so good, but um, I feel like Orion in the Dark isn't going for that kind of sentimentality. It's no. going for something a little bit more raw and relatable. Uh, that Pixar movies don't really come up against. Okay, yeah, fear is a character in Inside Out, mm -hmm. but fear is the rise on detch of something like Orion in the Dark. Yeah, it it is a movie predicated on fear. the The only thing I didn't really and I like the way uh, Orion comes to like the dark, but the dark starts to like feel bad about himself over the course of the movie. Like mm -hmm. feels worse and worse about himself. Yeah. Especially when he compares himself to light, who is also a character in the movie. Yeah. And light's uh, always like chasing after him. He's darkness is always moving from time zone to time zone mm. and lightness. Who's way more popular than him. You can tell because he has sunglasses. <laughs> uh, he's always chasing after him mm. because that's what happens after darkness. Yeah. Darkness is over turns light. light. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the actual, so, he's, so he's like feels yeah. insecure around light. Uh, and uh, oh, and we haven't mentioned that there is actually like a meta narrative twist where Orion yeah. is actually telling the story. We cut, mm -hmm. we flash forward in a very uh, unexpected way. Yeah. I feel bad almost bringing it's, it up, but it's, it's a really good, but it's really early movie. in the movie. It's like first act of the movie we see this, but it's happening. not the beginning where it would normally be. Yeah. It's after you've kind of gotten used to this being the reality, we find out that he's telling this story to his daughter because his daughter is afraid of the dark. Right. 
And, and his daughter is like calling the shots and pointing out like the lazy screenwriting tropes <laughs> he's going through. Which is, yeah. Uh, I, which is very adaptation. You know, it's, uh, I don't want to ruin how that part of the movie goes, mm. but that's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie because there's a lot of stories, a lot of movies that are about the story someone is telling. Princess Bride might be the most famous example, but it's a very common trope, especially in kids and fantasy stories. Um, the malleability of a narrative that is being woven as we speak is something that I, I don't know how much of this is in the original text or not, but it feels very Charlie Kaufman. So the either he, if he didn't add it, they got the right writer to do it. Mm. Uh, the way that the story we are being told changes over the course of the movie to fit the needs or the whims, the caprices, if you will, of the people telling it or hearing it weirdly creative and satisfying actually like stuff i haven't actually seen in this kind of tale and i've seen a billion of these like oh i've i've never seen one do that plot point before that adds a wrinkle and oh they're actually showing the complexities that are involved in adding that wrinkle and that makes it fun and unpredictable and then there's there's a, there's actually a good twist in this one <laughs> where i'm like oh shit i did well done done it's a very <laughs> smart movie and it's a very uh a relatable movie i, I wish it was well the, my only issue is that it doesn't know how to wrap itself up oh and it, and it has like it has this kind of like quick fantasy ending that I think it doesn't really point to. Like, it, yeah. it, it seems a little absurd. It it felt like, actually, it reminded me of Adaptation. Yeah. Where, um, because that movie is about the writing of itself, and the screenwriter's yeah. like, I don't know how to write the ending of this thing. And, and then his brother says, starts writing the last act, the last and act, his brother and it, and is and more of a Hollywood hack. Yeah, so it turns so. into this, like, kind of action sequence. Something yeah. kind of similar happens with O'Brien and the I Dark. think, actually, it almost works better here, actually. Yeah. I actually really like it, but I don't want to get into, I can't go into detail uh, without ruining it. Um, there's there's some really really good stuff uh, there. For me, the thing holding this back is and and it's gonna sound weird coming after the review for Argyle, but there is a definite superficial level of entertainment that the movie isn't terribly interested in. Like mm. it's got humor, but it's not particularly funny. It's got you know events that take place, but there isn't like a lot of action or thrills or intensity it's actually pretty mild for the most of it there's like one nightmare sequence but even that's pretty brief mm. it, it, it never really just knocks your sock off in the entertainment aspect it's engaging it's amusing it's never just like wow i can't wait to see that show that to everybody i know it's never like that level of like fun but it's never bad and it's always intelligent and it's interesting and the performances are really really good i like it a lot i guess i just maybe i could love it more but this is the kind of movie i'm almost glad it came out earlier in the year because by the end of the year i'll have come to a decision about whether i merely like this movie or love it okay i definitely like it though and after i've had a chance to sit with it and just see like what parts of this linger in my memory? What do I take from it? Does it kind of thing? This is a high standard, but for me, the best movies are whether I love them when I first saw them or not. Mm -hmm. The ones that I reference in my head. Okay. You know, like, um, 
a movie that I, I liked when I first saw it, and then I gradually realized I loved it, and I think it's one of the best movies of the last ten years. And it, sure enough, the Academy agreed. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay. And the thing for me, it's wonderful so much of that movie is, it's just the, the, the way that they dramatize the premise of the choices that you don't make uh, can define you as well. Yeah. And you are nothing if not a, a fountain of potential mm. based on the choices you do and do, don't make. And I think about like the branching paths as they are illustrated in that movie on a daily basis sometimes when I'm making decisions about what I'm doing. Like, my own career, my own family, whatever. Like, that movie has become part of my, like, brain's lexicon. <laughs> and that's a really high bar. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure this movie can't do that. So, at least that mm. has the potential. This is a really high recommendation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really loved it, too. I think yeah. it, it really understands deals with a high concept cleverly. Yeah. It introduces a lot of interesting narrative twists that make the storytelling kind of interesting. Yeah. I liked Orion as a character. I liked his development. I liked the dark as a character. Yeah, the, I love the design of dark. It's simple, <clears throat> but it's very distinct. It's distinct. It's yeah. like a, a little scary, but also huggable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like that this is a movie for kids about things kids are concerned with that doesn't for a second feel really toyetic. Yeah, because they're not trying to sell us shit. Those characters are like really interestingly designed, but a kid doesn't want to hug insomnia, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't feel like they're, they're not yes. trying to sell us toys. And mm. I, I, res I bet there's a producer out there who's kind of pissed about that. It's like, you could have sold some toys. But also, that producer probably should have known that Netflix wasn't going to let anyone know the movie existed. Mm. Which they didn't. Uh, you should check this movie out. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a definite recommendation. Obviously, we'll, when we do our review roundup, it'll probably score highly. Um, next up, a movie that I didn't see, Whitney did. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a movie about how to have sex called... How, how to Have Sex? Uh, how to Have Sex mm. is, uh, is, is an excellent picture. Oh. Um, it's from a filmmaker named... Let me look up her name. Um, Molly Manning Walker is the director's name. Okay. Is a British director. And this is sort of a semi-autobiographical piece mm. about uh, her life when she was around 16. Mm. And uh, she and her two friends are going off to Greece for uh, a break before they go back to school and figure out what like their final scores were. So okay. their, their, their futures are ahead of them. Um, I know that um, uh, social, uh, social standards are a little bit different in England. So when you're, uh, you know, the age of consent is 16. So when you're 16, you're really eager to to have sex for the first time. Hmm. And that's the goal of the main character. She is on this trip to uh, with her two buddies. They're going to go out and they're going to party. They're going to have a lot of drinks. And uh, the hope is that she'll get laid. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, it is shockingly explicit, this movie, the things that go on at these sort of uh, public parties. She starts to take a shine to this one young man, but uh, can't uh, really kind of connect with him or do anything. Uh, she ends up finding uh, uh, herself in the company of another man and has a little bit of a, a sexual encounter with him on a beach. And it's not great uh, because it's not fun, really. It, it feels so weirdly uh, desperate and forced. Mm. Uh, what this film captures is that uh, adolescent 
awkwardness in wanting to be in on the party. Yeah. And uh, and, yeah. and also wanting to keep the party going. Yeah. Um, I was reminded of Spring Breakers a I lot. I was just but, about to but say Spring Break forever. But but it doesn't have that kind of sleaziness or, yeah. or, or, or you know, like desperate Sinis- abstraction well, or cynicism. Very cynical yeah. Film, yeah. No, this is actually a very, uh, very soulful, very okay. humane movie. Um, uh, I was also reminded of like Morvern Kalar, where, you know, something really uh, harrowing happens to the... the the, the main character of that movie, Marvin Kalar, and how she kind of tries to lose herself in in the music and in the party. That's a big part of that movie. Uh, because this was based on uh, sort of a, a personal experience, there's a lot that feels very honest, but at the same time, these characters are very young. These are 16-year-olds. Yeah. They don't know really how to process a lot of what's going on and we're learning a lot about how uh these people have attitudes towards sex how mm. people are, feel really pressured to have sex uh, where lines of consent actually lie yeah. and that they're still sort of figuring out where that is because they haven't been talking about it before um yeah. for some of these people uh sex is just a party for this young woman who's never had it before it's it's going unprocessed. It's like, okay, you're just going to do it and it's going to be fun, right? No. Can we talk about this a little <laughs> bit a more? Ton of baggage like, is, is there, there's, yeah. there's details involved yeah. that we need to talk about. Uh, and, and yeah. it's, so it's really authentic. I was reminded a lot of uh, the movie After Sun as well, and okay. that it's kind of like wandering lost around these areas. Uh, this takes place in Greece, but you wouldn't know it to look because it takes place in like alleyways and bars and clubs. These, hmm. these people aren't, inter- these young characters aren't interested in doing anything cultured they're not touring greece they're not learning yeah they're... I, was, do you know if it was filmed in greece i, th- I think it might have been i, I, I always love sure. it when movies take place in places that were like you know like if you imagine like in a movie you know it's going to take place in greece it'll just the, the establishing shot will be like a helicopter shot of the parthenon or something right mm. i always like it in movies where they take place in like a somewhat famous place or a very famous place but we don't see it from all the angles that we're used to yeah, you know, it's like uh, we're gonna do a movie set in Los Angeles, but it takes place in Century City, <laughs> like which you never yeah. see outside of that one Planet of the Apes movie. You know? <laughs> but, I, I like yeah. that. I, that. I think that's an interesting take. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's I, I I go to Las Vegas a lot. I like going to Las Vegas, and if you've ever been to the Strip, you know what it looks like. It's yeah. just you know shiny glitz, glamour, you, yeah. promise of of sex and and millions and yeah. gambling winnings. Yeah. Neon, yeah. as far as the eye can see. Uh, drive. Uh, ten minutes off of the strip. Yeah, it's a dumpy town. Oh yeah, there's there's nothing in Las Vegas outside of the strip. Everything exists uh, to support that one glamorous few street. blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's not until you kind of start delving around you realize, oh wait, there actually is like some culture in in Las Vegas because it's a college town. UNLV is that is there. Yeah, and um. There's actually like a thriving punk rock scene in Las Vegas. There's ah. like a kind of a lot of interesting stuff going on in Las Vegas. Um, but you do realize that part of it's really shiny, part of it's real, and you only see one. Mm. And I feel like that's uh, how to have sex is that we're seeing sort of like the shiny part. We're seeing like the dumpy alleyways. We're not seeing the whole culture or anything yeah. like that. It's uh, um, The director previously worked as a cinematographer, and you can really tell because there's a lot of that kind of textured neon... <clears throat> disgustingness like mm. the neon slime as wings hauser might say ah. and uh 
and how that is really, really alluring for a young person and how you really want to be part of that party and how you get, there's a lot of disappointments sprinkled in throughout that party. You don't get to talk to this person. You're not invited to this kind of party. You're seen as uncool. A lot of those anxieties are right there on the surface. And it's really, really honest in that regard. I just want to say one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We should probably add a new rule to take a drink every time Whitney quotes Wings Hauser. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which doesn't happen I, often, I, I but when do it does, it. you should take a drink. I don't do it. <laughs> I just so thought the, that was the, the Wings, most random quote. The, the Wingshauser bit is a reference to a movie called Vice Squad, yes. which is an excellent B-movie, which I assume people know about. It's an, It was forgotten for a while. It got kind of re-noticed as this kind of triumph of 80s sleaze. Yeah. The story goes, I don't know how true it is. That Martin Scorsese was like overheard or had a famous conversation with somebody where they said, if anybody in this town was honest, they'd admit that Vice Squad was the best movie they could have this year. <laughs> I don't know yeah, how Vice. true that is. I choose to believe that yeah, it's true. Uh, Season Hubley plays a sex worker in Vice Squad. And, and like her uh, pimp is, a, is this uh, horrible murdering s- maniac. Super mo- like he's, yeah. he's almost... An, it, Superhuman, man. He's played by yeah. Wings Hauser. He wears yeah. cowboy boots and like runs across rooftops and shit. Yeah, he's a Batman uh, villain, basically. Yeah. yeah, and she's just on the run from him, and that's kind of the whole movie. Uh, it's an incredible achievement. It's so fucking sleazy. It's su- and it's super and, uh, sleazy. And the theme song to Vice Squad is called Neon Slime, and yeah. it was sung by Wings Hauser. Wings Hauser can't sing for shit. No, uh, he is a terrible singer. Yeah, um, yeah he was the worst part um, of Wings. I don't think he's in Wings. He's. Uh, uh, no, I don't think he's in Wings. I know he's named Wings. Okay. But he's not in Wings. I thought he was, like, back the, the, up to the, Paul McCartney. The, and... the sitcom or the band. Okay, I was talking about the band. Okay. Okay. He can, you know what? I just completely derailed the whole podcast with that joke. <laughs> it's over now. You know, Paul, Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. Oh, no shit. Somebody overheard that in LA. It's like, oh, you know, Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings? <laughs> <coughs> Oh yeah, what was it oh, called? I don't know. It's a skiffle band of some kind. Skiffle band? Yeah, skiffle. Mm. Donnie Lonergan and skiffle band. It's a type of mm. music from the early '60s. Uh, I guess before the early '60s. I that, haven't heard that term. That uh, the Beatles derived their sound from a lot oh, of skif- the, skiffle traditions. Who are the Beatles? Uh, remember Buddy Holly? Yes. Inspired by them. Oh neat. Uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Yeah. Buddy Holly, how, how not have, one of the crickets. How to, he nearly had crickets on him. Yes, that's right. How to Have Sex is an excellent picture. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad we're back to uh, that. It's, it's one I know I'm going to be ruminating on for a while, uh, so uh, don't be surprised if I mention it more and more throughout the year, because I think good. it actually kind of brings up a lot of interesting uh, mo- moods and thoughts about the adolescent experience. It's a little, it's very raw. Okay. Like I said, it is about... Uh, Wait, un- un- after Sun for crying Yeah, it's, This it's, isn't like a superficial know, teen flick. Yeah, it, it it's not it's not a teen comedy. It's it, it's what what happens in real life when you try to do a teen comedy in real life? Pain. Yeah, yeah. Life life doesn't really wrap up that way. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, listen. Um, why don't I just have you rather than split it up? Because it just feels like the more natural through line. Why don't you tell me about Scrambled? Okay. Yeah. Scrambled. It's another movie uh, you saw that I didn't. So, okay. Uh, yeah. Scrambled is a new movie that was uh, written, directed, and starring Leah McKendrick. Uh, an upcoming comedian. Um, let's see what else. Uh, she uh, wrote a film called MFA a couple of years ago. But oh, um, I remember that. I, I don't think I saw it, but I remember that coming. Yeah, th- this one she wrote and she directed and and she stars in. Okay. And she stars as a young woman. Uh, her name is uh, Nellie, and she's 
reached the age when struggling isn't cute anymore. Yeah. Uh, she's like in her early thirties and she makes a living as like an Etsy artist and she can't really make ends meet. And, uh, she's starting to feel a lot of existentialist dread about her, uh, relationship status because she is in the position of always being a bridesmaid. And, uh, in fact, the film opens with a rather hilarious scene where she's a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding. Mm. A friend is getting married and her friend is freaking out. It's like, okay, I'm getting married. I'm getting married. You have meth on you, right? It's like, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's the opening scene. It's like, it's like I, don't, I don't have any pills on me. I'm carrying meth to a wedding. It's like, come on, come on. I really How need it. Really would need. that be? And, and, and of course the joke is, okay, let me go ask somebody. <laughs> like, it's yeah, like, I, she, I, she, I, she can, I can get you meth. Okay. So she's still like trying to keep the part, again, like in yeah. How to Have Sex, she's trying to keep the party going. Yeah. <clears throat> And we learn over the course of, like, the early parts of this movie, she has uh, uh, dinner with her family, she has a, a rich tech bro brother. Uh, it's uh, a literal really, tech bro. Little tech bro brother, uh, tech brother. And uh, her dad is played by Clancy Brown, or, and um, uh. they're constantly pressuring her, like, why, how come you haven't found a good guy and gotten us some grandchildren kind When of are stuff? you going to get yeah. married, Marty? You should be ashamed of yourself. And this only uh, sort of brings to mind the fact that she just broke up. With her, like, you should have a kid with that guy, Sean. It's like, me and Sean broke up. Yeah. And we learn over the course of the movie that Sean is kind of the one that got away. Uh, that she kind of probably could stayed with Sean and had a happy, long relationship. But she, was, she wasn't she was ready for that yet. She wanted to just kind of yeah. keep the party going. And right so guy, she wrong broke time. Up. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, we kind of, there's, she then <coughs> enters into the site. Oh, and she also goes to her doctor. Mm. And they say that... Um, just because of her body chemistry and because of her genetics, mm. she might go through menopause a little or, earlier, or earlier than usual, than usual yeah, or yeah. like just something about the viability of her eggs is at risk. Mm-hmm. So now she has to start taking hormone injections to decide whether or not she wants to keep some of her eggs and freeze them to fertilize later in her life. Yeah. Just in case. Yeah. This is, But this is a big decision for her. She has mm. to go through this battery of shots. She has to stab mm. herself in the stomach all it's day. It's not cheap. It's, it? it's not cheap. She has yeah. to borrow a bunch of money from her brother. who you know, She has to swallow her pride to do that because she kind of hates having to do that. Yeah. And through this process, she goes through kind of like um, a high fidelity thing where she starts looking back over the men she's dated <clears throat> and tries to like mm. sort of see, well, maybe I could just have a child with one of my old boyfriends. Yeah. Let's get back together with them and of course some of them are really broad and funny and slapsticky like one guy uh, is a cult leader now in a comedic kind of a way okay but she also has some pretty soulful conversations about like the state of her own loneliness in fact by the the last third of this movie a lot of that comedy falls away and it becomes about sort of her contemplating her state her state of loneliness uh, how important this is to her, how, why, how much pain she's feeling through all this process, how much it hurts every time she goes to an, another baby shower. Yeah. Um, uh, and I appreciate that uh, Leah McKendrick is really uh, delving into that. She's really putting a lot of uh, personality and a lot of emotions into these, uh, these moments because that's what's really kind of buoying the film. But it's also really, really ping-ponging back and forth because a lot of it is really broad and slapsticky almost in a saturday night live kind of way in certain mm. scenes where yeah because yeah we're introduced to a cult member or cult yeah. leader and well these... if you're doing that thing where you're gonna go back to all their exes all of those scenes should be fun yeah so you come up what's the but funniest yeah, so, thing they could be doing so there's there's something uh she's kind of, yeah kind of ping-ponging back and forth between something that's really emotionally honest and something that's really wacky and they don't really quite fit mm. over it's not a wash Overall, it's actually a, a pretty good film, especially because it ends on the emotional notes and okay. kind of 
we get to know that character pretty well. Mm. Um, not all the jokes really land, and yeah. some of the jokes are a little too broad for how the, the film ends up. But, mm. um, uh, yeah, she she's not really narrowing. It feels like... Um, she is a first-time director, yeah. So, and it feels like she's a first-time director. She's yeah. not she doesn't know what kind of filmmaker she wants to be yet. Does yeah, she want to be. Does yeah. she want to be a dramatic filmmaker or really broadly comedic filmmaker? It's, she, she seems like she's capable of doing both, but she mm-hmm. wasn't able to commit with this picture. Um, but but again, I still like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still like what she did. I like the story that she told, and I liked uh, the the comedy was pretty funny from time to time. There's a movie you, what you're describing reminds me of, and obviously I didn't see mm-hmm. this one, so I can't really make a meaningful comparison. But maybe you can. Did you see Britney runs a marathon? I did. Yeah, yeah I like Britney runs a marathon. Yeah, with Jillian Bell, uh-huh. and uh, she plays a woman. She's in the exact same starting position. Um, she's at a point where you know her lack of success is not something that is. Uh, you know, seems appropriate for where she's supposed to be in life. And she also finds out, and I appreciate the way that they handle it. She goes to a doctor and the doctor said, we're concerned about your health. And she's like, is this because I'm not thin? Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean I'm unhealthy. And the doctor's right. you're right. It doesn't necessarily mean you're unhealthy. But you're but unhealthy, you're, yeah. You specifically, you know, your like, blood pressure isn't good. Like, these, you, have, you should work on this. And as someone who has anxiety about going to the doctor for weight issues, and they've been, like, shamed by doctors in the past, which has is not effective as a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was worried about how they would handle that. I think they handled it okay. But basically, it's about her trying to get her... Trying to develop healthier you said you practices. Didn't, you, you said you didn't see this movie? I didn't see your movie. Oh, I saw okay. I saw Britney Runs a Marathon. Okay, right. And that's another one where it starts off kind of broadly funny, because Julian Bell's very, very funny. But by the end of it, mm-hmm. it's just kind of an indie drama. And yeah. I thought what they did kind of effectively was sort of like wean off of the wackiness. Yeah, yeah. Until it, it, So that one actually felt like, rather than trying to do both things simultaneously, it was a gradual shift. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, with Britney Runs a Marathon, it, it was careful to call it shots early on. Yeah. Uh, she, we actually see that she's kind of unhappy in her situation. Uh, in Scrambled, we see that she's unhappy, but it is kind of like a funny unhappy. Um, it's like, you know, midlife crisis <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. You know, she's three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, who knows if we'll have a future in 30 yeah, more uh, years? Uh, call, mid- call, we might be midlife. Call, call it a third life crisis movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah uh, so when it and in fact here's a good way to sort of gauge how wacky it is at the beginning mm. we get a cameo from June Diane Raphael uh whose entire career these days seems mm. to be showing up early in movies doing something incredibly hilarious to set the action in motion and then mm. not appearing in the rest of the film uh so yeah the at the um Wedding reception. She has a conversation with June Diane Raphael, who okay. I like to think is just playing herself at this point, uh, and uh, kind of like lays out what it is to be a mom and how horrible it is to be a mom. And she has this wonderful, very funny speech. Uh, and June Diane Raphael is a very funny actress. So uh, we're kind of put in this place where we think this is going to be something a little bit more broad, and then it ends up not being that. And it ter- turns into something a little bit more uneven. But like I said, this is somebody who is becoming assured as a filmmaker. And I can I'd be eager to see what Leah McKendrick does later on. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, uh, the last one we're going to be talking about is one I saw that you didn't, but subject matter you're familiar with. And I know you can contribute. All right. Uh, it is a new documentary. <clears throat> it's on Shutter called Dario Argento Panico. Uh, it's a documentary about horror filmmaker Dario Argento, who did not invent the giallo genre, but came to kind of typify it. 
through a, a series of initially like one or two stumbles, notwithstanding, like kind of a huge hit machine from like the early seventies to like the late eighties, just one awesome flick after another films like the bird of the crystal plumage, cat of nine tails, four flies in gray velvet, deep red. Mm. Yeah. Suspiria, deep Inferno, Tenebrae, um, phenomena aka creepers and opera opera yeah. oh god opera and, and that that run up. that run of films right That's there an, ooh, that is an incredible run of films any mm-hmm. filmmaker would be jealous of that shit um and, and he was a writer long before he started directing yeah like, Bird, was, Bird he, with the Crystal Plumage was his first film as a director but mm-hmm. he wrote he, he co-wrote Once Upon a Time in the West he was a film critic for a while or, or an art critic I think I don't know if he specifically mm-hmm. did film they mentioned that he did ballet as well like he reviewed ballet want to read those reviews um he was you one said of the ten, most, you said Tenebrae, right? I said Tenebrae. Okay. Uh, he was one of and, and still is, I suppose, one of the most famous filmmakers <clears throat> in Italy. And although a lot of the Italian filmmakers that probably Americans are familiar with are some of the big art house filmmakers like Fellini, uh, he was the one who did. He was kind of considered like Italy's Hitchcock, which isn't entirely accurate, but he became famous and synonymous with exciting, violent thrillers. And because he was kind of forward-facing for a filmmaker, he, like, would be on TV a lot, people recognized him. He was Mm. a celebrity as well. Uh, He had an incredibly powerful, influential run, and then towards the second half of his career, the last 20, 25, 30 years or so, you know, a few good movies here or there, but he really just hasn't been making great movies for a long time. Uh, this is a documentary. Well, he, he, he yeah. was, he's of that generation that uh, worked in genre films for a long time in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when that type of film fell out of favor, they just had trouble getting funding. Well, they talk about that, actually. Um, the, the, the framing device of this movie is that Dario Argento, when he's writing a new movie, he likes to hole up in a hotel somewhere, just completely isolated from everything, and just focus on writing his book. Mm-hmm. And he's in and a hotel. Uh, he's writing a screenplay, sorry. He's here mm-hmm. to write a screenplay. Uh, he's going to a hotel to write his screenplay, but there's a documentary film crew following him around, looking at his process, and interviewing him about his career. Uh, and then we intercut with a general overview of his career. Honestly, this could have been a four-hour documentary and not wanted for material. It's like a trim 100 minutes. All right. Probably should have been longer, which is something I don't say a lot. Um... But they talk about his childhood, his early creative work, and then they really spend a lot of time on his career between uh, Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Opera, and then a little bit on his stuff in the 90s, and then they barely mention anything afterwards. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and he, he's continued to make a lot of movies. Yeah, Just and saying. honestly, his most recent movie came out, I think, last year or the year before that, Dark Glasses, is actually one of his better films in a really long time. Like, it's a mm. good movie. Um it's a, it's about a uh, a sex worker who uh, gets in a car crash and it's somehow connected to like a serial killer like I, I think the killer was in the other car or something like that she loses her vision and a lot of the movie is her adapting to her disability and trying to find a way to make it work with her sex work it's a very a, a, a very mature film about disability and positivity about sex work and it's a serial killer thriller and a pretty good one so it's a really good movie but what they talk about, it, they talk a lot about, like, you know, how 
the type of movies that he was directing in particular were just completely outlandish. People thought they wouldn't work, and then they were surprise hits, and then he kind of got kind of carte blanche for like a decade to do whatever, and he kept pushing the boundaries and making wilder films that made bigger and bigger impressions, and then they, they talk about like after opera, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like what happened after opera? Why, why, and, did, why was there such a sharp fall off in quality? In and like, movies and like his 90s? family does a lot of interviews, interviews with both of his daughters and his sister, and also filmmakers who are huge mm-hmm. fans, like Nicholas Winding Refn or Guillermo del Toro or Gaspar Noe. Um, but his family is just, just like he got less angry. Okay. Like he and and even uh, Ozzy Argento, who's got a complicated uh, past, which they don't get into because it's not about her. Um, she says the type of you know emotional you know turmoil or volatility, whatever it was, uh, that pushed him to make these incredibly ambitious, uh, uh, daring horror movies uh, in a very distinct way, uh, came from a different version. Of Dario Argento, and as he matured as a person, mm. the stories that he told changed. And and she and she's interestingly zen about it. She just says, "Listen, maybe those movies aren't as popular, or maybe they aren't even as good." He got better as a person. As a person, and I okay. think that's a good thing. And I think the art should change as people change. Because if your art never changes, it means you're not changing. Which is yeah. fair, actually. Well, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, there's also they also yeah. mentioned that the economy of uh, Italian filmmaking changed a lot. Yeah, and that's, that's it was harder to get an R-rated um, movie to be profitable, and so mm-hmm. they kept asking him to like diminish it. Or if you're going to do it, it had to be made a lot cheaper, and that really hindered his creativity. Yeah. Well, and I know that happens with a lot of filmmakers. They're they become associated with a genre. Mm-hmm. They're expected to keep on working in the genre. They might love it, but yeah. sometimes they want to tell other kinds of stories or they want to tell scary stories in a different kind of a way. Mm-hmm. And Wes Craven um, was desperate to move out of the horror genre. Yeah, well, yeah. He, he at least did. He got to. Yeah, um, he made a few. Mur- uh, Music of the Heart, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, was, was not... an Oscar bait movie. Os- yeah. It got two Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. I, I think two. It was Best Original Song and Best Actress. Yeah, Mer- yeah. Meryl Streep got yeah. another one. Yeah, um, uh, Sam yeah. Raimi moved away from Schlock. He made a baseball movie for Love yeah. of the Game, the movie nobody talks about. It's a good movie. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's a fine filmmaker. Yeah. I, I think his uh, A Simple Plan is his best movie. There's um, an argument to be made. Uh, and uh, yeah, you you see these filmmakers trying to move away from that, and the industry either won't let them. Like the only kinds of films mm-hmm. they could get funding for are the things they're best known for, mm, the safe bets. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or um, yeah, just trends change. Yeah, certain kinds of films aren't in vogue anymore. It's like yeah. I'm I'm sure Joe Dante didn't want to work with smaller and smaller budgets. Yeah, no, it's harder. It gets yeah. a lot, harder. and this is one of the reasons why they don't talk about um, Masters of Horror, which is a series Dario Argento contributed to. But mm-hmm. uh, Mick Garris, who is a producer, screenwriter, made some movies of varying quality. Uh, Did but a lot of Stephen King stuff. A lot yeah. of Stephen King stations, mostly for TV. Um, he realized that he knew all of these brilliant horror filmmakers and in like the early 2000s even though they were commodities they were names people were famous they couldn't get anything made yeah. like they couldn't get a budget and so he went to showtime and he says I'm, I'm pitching an anthology series where we give all of these super famous filmmakers think of the lineup you'll have mm. we give them director's cut 
and we just give them a a, a modest budget, like you yeah. get like eight hundred thousand dollars to make an hour long movie, and just let them go. Mm. Interesting series. Now, they weren't all hits, but some of them were great. I I, I love Lucky McKee's short. Mm, Lucky McKee's uh, I like uh, John Carpenter's first short. Second one yeah. not so much, but um... I love Joe Dante's uh, zombie. Uh, uh, zombie war movie. Mm-hmm. It's a very more of a political satire, but it's great. Uh, but w- what was Argento's film? He I made a film. I think it was called. It was like, I think it was called Jennifer. But it was about a guy who found like a mysterious woman, and she was uh, she had a very uh, frightening face. But he mm-hmm. became very obsessed with her and fell in lust with her and would do incredibly terrible things for her. Uh-huh. It's not. It's not great, honestly. It's it's it, it, it's just okay. But um. Darno Gento Panico is, it, 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 I feel like it's made for a very specific audience, because there's two kinds of audiences, really, you would think would be for a documentary about a filmmaker. Either the documentary will be made for people who aren't familiar with their work, and this mm. is a primer, this is, hey, maybe you've heard the name, this is why they are great, we're going to guide you through their whole career, here's why this movie is important, here's what's cool about this movie, and there's a bit of that. Or it could be, you already know who he is. Now we're going to really lift the veil. Okay. And there's a little bit of that. But it's never all of that. Hmm. And as a result, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a Dario Argento fan. I haven't seen every single movie he's done, but I've seen the majority. Okay. And I've liked most of them. Again, he hit the skids in the 90s and the 2000s. But even then, there's some some good stuff. Uh, It's never fully deep enough for me. I, there are some good bits, there's some interesting anecdotes, but nothing that really blew me away. Uh, but I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I know what the plot of Phenomena is, or they in the movie they call it Creepers, which is one of the other titles it went under. Because Phenomena has an amazing plot. It's uh, mm. Jennifer Connelly, young Jennifer Connelly, like Labyrinth era Jennifer Connelly. Psychically connect to bugs. Yeah, she she's a psychic connection to bugs, and she is basically playing David Bowie's daughter, like the daughter of a really famous glam rocker. And she's at a, a, an all girls Academy, like, you know, the, to spend her days, or whatever, you know, like one of those, mm. one of those. Uh, but she ends up getting swept up in a murder mystery that Donald Pleasance is investigating. And you will not see the ending coming. The ending of that movie. Like I thought I was like, oh, okay, I think maybe I know where you're going. Like, Nope. <laughs> I did not know we were going to end like that. Holy shit. Um, great fucking movie. They don't even tell you what it's about. Mm. They, these and, and it's always weird to me when they do these kinds of, like, overview movies, uh, documentaries, where you realize that, like, you, you can't spend an equal amount of time on every film. I appreciate that. You're picking your battles. The ones that they choose to ignore always weird me out. Mm. Like... We spent a lot of time on The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. It was his first movie. Brilliant film. And then we skip Cat O'Nine Tales, a very good movie with a co-star in Carl Malden. Oh, weird. Uh, and then we go straight to Four Flies and Grey Velvet. And, like, you barely mention Cat O'Nine Tales. That's a popular film. Do you have nothing on that? Like, nothing came out of that? You have you spend more time on, on five days, the comedy he made, to try to, like you know, spread his wings a bit and it was a huge flop and it made him go like extra hard on <laughs> Deep Red. Like, oh shit, okay, so you want me to do this? Fuck you, I'm gonna make Deep Red as fucked up as possible. I love Deep Red. Deep Red's, honestly, Suspiria is probably his most it's famous a, film. Uh-huh. Maybe it's his best film. I'd say it's Deep Red. Deep Red or Inferno, for me, I think okay. are, the, are the zenith of his work. Almost opera. 
Opera has like one ending too many, I think. Uh-huh. It, it still works, but I think like if it had ended like 5 minutes earlier it would have been way stronger. Right. Uh but Opera is fucking amazing. Um <laughs> I I wonder if this is <laughs> I wonder if this is the movie you recommend to people who don't know Argento, if they're going to fully get excited about seeing Argento's movies, because maybe there's not enough well, of maybe, Primer. Maybe this and I'm is... wondering if this is for the fans, are they going to feel like it's not meaty enough? From what you're describing, hmm. this is for the people who have seen Suspiria and nothing oh. else. Okay. It's like, I, I've seen, I know the name, mm-hmm. I've seen at least not one unfamiliar. of his movies, yeah. but I don't know a lot about this guy. So yeah. here's like a, a 102 class. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. I, and listen, it's. It, I'd say this. I'll. I'll say this. Mm-hmm. I think if you're a horror fan and you're passingly familiar with Argento, check it out. I think if you're a fan of Argento and you accept that this movie probably isn't going to have any massive revelations that are going to blow your mind, mm-hmm. it's short, so it's still like you know a pretty decent afternoon watch. Um, it's directed by uh, someone who I'm not familiar. Hold on a second. I want to make sure I get her name right. Um, Simone Scafidi, who has also directed a documentary about Lucio Fulci called Fulci for Fake, (laughs) uh, which is a funny title. Um, I want to see that. And the reason why is because Lucio Fulci is, to me, what Dario Argento would be to the people you're describing, which is someone mm-hmm. who I've seen some of his movies. Okay. But he's a huge fucking catalog. Oh, golly, yeah. And the, I haven't all seen All of these of Italian them. horror filmmakers were embarrassingly prolific. prolific. Yeah. yeah, and like, so I haven't seen, i probably seen maybe a third of Lucio Fulci's movies, if okay. that. Which is respectable, but I don't know more, and this would be an opportunity for me to learn more. So I kind of want to check out that documentary for that reason. So I guess it is that kind of middle ground thing. So for that specific middle ground, mm-hmm. definite recommendation. For everyone else, yeah, 50-50. Anyway, uh, that's it for our new release reviews. Let's uh, do our review roundup. We review movies on a scale of C- to C+, where a C- is, is below average. Maybe slightly below average, maybe way below average. But those are movies we don't recommend. Mm. Uh, a C would be considered average. Those are movies that, uh, you know, maybe more for one audience than another, maybe more of a mixed bag, but they're neither great nor awful. Uh, and then a C plus is above average. Maybe it's slightly above average, maybe it's significantly above average, but either way, we're definitely recommending it. Yeah. On that note, uh, Dario Argento Panico is, I'd say it's a high C. Okay. Uh, it's never so great that I can definitely tell you to see it, but as we described in the review, if any of those criteria seem to fit you, if Dario Argento is someone who you're kind of familiar with but don't know a lot about, this would probably be a good place to, to jump in. But I do wish it had done a better job of selling you on, or at least describing what some of the movies that they talk about are. Like, we're going sort of, oh, and here's some of the background stories on opera. You want to tell the audience what opera is about, at least? Like, sell, like, sell them on the movie a little bit? Anyway, uh, so uh, Scrambled. Uh, Scrambled is a C. Like okay. like I said, this is a filmmaker uh, finding her voice, and I think she's doing a pretty good job of it. I, I like the characterization of it. Um, I like the drama more than I like the comedy elements of it. But yeah, um, but yeah it's, a, it's a C. I, I feel like she's got places to go. All right, how to have sex. How to have sex is a C plus. I really liked it. I loved how raw it is. I loved how honest it was. I loved how 
it delved into parts of the adolescent experience that aren't really looked at in movies in a non-salacious kind of a way. Hmm. Uh, it's it takes something that sounds salacious on the cover and really finds the, the the very honest hurt inside of it, and that's that's very admirable. That's a, that's a hell of a recommendation. Um, uh, Orion and the Dark. Uh, I'm gonna give it's not my highest C plus, but I'm gonna let it marinate. Okay. There may come a time when I say this is a very high C plus, but it's a definite recommendation. It's intelligent. It's creative. Uh, it is. Uh, it, it's a good film for kids that doesn't pander, which is a rarity. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I think it's quite solid. And I would recommend even you know, even though it's definitely a kids movie, I think everyone can enjoy it. Yeah, I, I agree. I also give it a C plus. I think uh, it it de- goes into things. Uh, that kids movies don't do often enough. And that mm. is like fear and neuroses mm. in a way that I think kids understand. It's not trying to mm. foist human uh, pains or neuroses on kids. I think that's something a kid might. Yeah. Get. But it also, and I appreciate that it also uh, deals in sort of the complexity of uh, relationships mm. as well, not just friendships, but also family in uh, ways that I think some kids movies don't. So yeah, excellent film. Excellent film. Uh, and then uh, lastly, mm. Argyle. Argyle, uh, C minus, skip it. Yeah. Don't watch this boring, dull flick that, I think, that is uninspired and not interesting. I think that there are going to... I'm giving it a C- minus as well. It's not... I'm not mad at it. It's a, There are definitely C- minuses where I'm like, seriously, I hate this movie. This movie mm. is like... If it elicited a truly negative reaction out of me. Yeah. Uh, this one... There are times when it's a solid C. When it's just like, hey, this is kind of fun. It's superficial, but I'm having a good time. <laughs> yeah. But it ultimately amounts to every time I think about this movie, I think about the stuff that sucks, not the stuff that's good. Because mm. the stuff that's good isn't good enough, and it's not preponderous enough. Yeah. So I think that there's definitely going to be some people who will like this movie more than we do, and they're going to call us like big sticks in the mud. Because, like, hey, what were you expecting? I was expecting a little better. Uh, yeah, okay. it's like I, I see. My what, standards aren't this low. I'm sorry. I see I would, what it's doing with yeah. its action and its color yeah. and its brisk pace and its bright visuals. I'm just not impressed because it's not engaging me Here's, in, in a way that I feel action films ought to. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's not that I I have. You, you can talk about my standards all you like, but I think that we need to be engaged in a certain way when we watch an action film. And this film didn't do it. It failed on a very fundamental level. So yes, it is a C minus. Here's what I'm going to say about this movie. Mm. And I mean this. Argyle is at least twice as good as Kingsman the Secret Service. Oh, golly, yes. I uh, don't I, like I was, that movie at all, I, so I that was, doesn't say a lot, but I do prefer the, it to that. Th- that I, I was not brazenly offended yeah. by Argyle the same way I was by the Kingsman movies and yeah. by Kick-Ass I was mad, doesn't say a lot. I was mad at what those movies thought would entertain me. Yeah, yeah, I was like, you, you think, you think that of me? You, you think I'm that kind? You think I'm as gross as you? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, like I'm, yeah. I was. This one is just superficial, and that's not enough. But God knows I've seen worse. I'll, mm. I'll, I'll give it that. Put that on the poster. God knows I've seen worse. Says William <laughs> Bibiani, critically acclaimed. Uh, thank you everybody for listening thank you for being here we'll be back uh, next week with reviews of uh, Lisa Frankenstein that's coming out it's a Diablo Cody written movie yeah that's exciting it's, I think it's their first mm. horror movie since uh, Jennifer's Body been a while yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's it's got a lot of potential I haven't seen it yet uh, and other things as well sadly we gotta wait an extra week for Madam Web that's too bad I know I'm, I'm actually like kind of like 
please be fun. Because <laughs> the trailer makes it look so ridiculous. I really, I'm, I'm trying not we're to get going, my, we're I, gonna re, I, I we're going to like review that. Uh, we're going to review that movie uh, in the Amazon with our moms when she was studying spiders right right <laughs> before, before she, she died. died. Yeah. I, again, I try not to have anticipation, but it's it's seriously, there there aren't a lot of trailers that bring me joy. <laughs> Where, there's a lot of trailers I'm like, yeah, it looks okay, or eh, it doesn't uh, look very good. But like every once in a while, uh, it's like that new Dove Patel film, I think it's Monkey Man. Or something like oh, that. Yeah, like yeah. that, you actually directed it and he's starting an action movie. Like, that trailer is a good trailer. Mm. Also, the trailer for Long Legs, the new uh, Osgood Perkins film. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that trailer is a great fucking teaser. That's a teaser that makes you go, I don't know what the fuck that is, but I'm going to see it. Hmm. So, the art of the trailer is not dead. Madam Web, uh, Long Legs, <laughs> and, and that Duff Patel film are, are hmm. keeping it alive. That's good. Uh, we'll see how the and, movie goes. And, and I've said that uh, Madam Web stars. Um, Hmm. Dakota Johnson. Well, it stars Dakota Johnson. It stars two of um, like me and my wife's like celebrity bays. Okay. Like we, we have crushes on certain performers in the movie, so okay. uh, like we we each get one, and uh, like we each have a crush in that movie, and then it comes out on Valentine's Day. It's kind of fitting, so yeah. it's like oh, God. It's something for everyone. It's something here. for everyone. We're gonna see it. Oh, it's gonna suck, isn't it? Oh no. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, we'll maybe see. it'll you know be what? good. It'll I would, be fun and bad in a fun way. Who I would say? love to be impressed. Yeah. I've always want to be impressed or surprised yes. by something that comes like I would have I don't want to hate I don't wanna hate Argyle. Who wants to have a bad day? I want to be surprised by Argyle. Who wants yeah. to have a, no one wants to have a bad day at work. We all want to have a good day at work. Anyway. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. We think you're the best. Uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our yeah. P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. That's right. We may read your correspondence on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We've got mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where for even just one dollar a month you get access to some of our catalog of patreon exclusive shows you also get all of our new shows ad free which mm. great <laughs> I, I don't i don't know yeah tell me about it uh and uh and but also depending on what tier you join you might get a whole bunch of new ongoing uh podcasts as well including our all our yesterday's uh star trek podcast we review every single star trek episode ever mm-hmm. huge back catalog uh and uh we we also have a new episode coming up hopefully soon of only the best it's our podcast where we review every best picture nominee ever and we're about to do an episode uh, i'm hoping in the next week and a half uh, um, depending on what I can get it, to I'm a little I, behind on my it, film it, viewing that's one where like either Whitney is ahead of the game or I'm ahead of the game but we're never ahead of the game at the same time <laughs> uh, so uh, but hopefully we record soon it's the best picture nominees in 1955 and we're gonna talk about all of them even the ones that like are kind of forgotten and we're gonna decide really what should have won uh, and there's a big back catalog of that as well so thank you to all of our patrons without you we can't do this and that just it means the world to us thank you for supporting us and we're on social media at Critic Acclaim I'm Matt William Bibiani I'm Matt Whitney Seibold and uh, that's a wrap and never forget and stuff everyone's a critic I wanna go to the midnight show I'm sorry what?